Well, hey, for the past several decades now, headlines in uh, mainstream news organizations have from time to time featured uh, stories on the steady decline of the church in the West. Uh, since about the 1960s to mid-1970s, the church in America, uh, really for the first time in American history, began to shrink. And since that decline, it's actually only increased in that decline at a more rapid pace. Well, at the same time the church is decreasing, there's also been the steady increase in people who are now claiming uh, no religious affiliation whatsoever. So more and more people are just marking the box, quote-unquote, none, when asked about religion. Researchers estimate that if these trends continue, as they, as they have been for the past several decades, uh, the estimation is by the year 2070, if not earlier, there's actually, actually going to be more people in America that claim no religious affiliation than those who claim the Christian faith. Uh, that will be the first time in American history that that's ever happened. Now, these statistics typically cause many to ask within Christendom, uh, what is going on? What's happening? Why is the church failing to reach the next generation? And much research over the years has been done on this problem by much uh, smarter people than I to try and answer those questions. And I've read a lot of the the research over the years, and and here's really what it, it boils down to. Uh, so with, with the rise of liberal theology over the past century and with its attack on uh, the inerrancy and the authority of scriptures and with that the rise of what, what would be considered progressive churches, the, those, those quote-unquote churches began to then uh, abandon the authority of God's word and they began to abandon the authority of Christ and they began to uh, really take hold of more so the, the, the authority of the surrounding culture. They began to emulate the culture that was around them them rather than living as a counterculture. And so that's, that's one side of the spectrum. But on the other side of the spectrum, researchers have seen that, that many uh, ultra-conservative churches began to emulate their preferred political party, began looking more like a, a branch of the Republican National Committee than they did as citizens of heaven. And so you had both these extremes on both sides kind of emulating more the culture from different angles, but abandoning what true historic Orthodox Christianity is. And so what began maybe on those more extreme fringes, both the liberal and what would be considered a conservative churches, abandoning really, again, like what I said, Orthodox Christianity has over the centuries now or over the decades now began to filter more and more into our own lives. And so what's become commonplace in our churches today so often now is that pastors and leaders within the church have become seen or been seen more now as more a self-help or therapeutic inspirational speaker or more of a, a, as a lobbyist for their favorite politician or political party. And then today, much of what is labeled Christianity, specifically within the West, looks no different than really its surrounding culture And many Christians today become so intimately connected and intertwined with the world that the next generation, the generation that's coming up, doesn't look to Christ to answer the deep questions for the soul that every human being has. Questions on suffering, questions about death, questions about pain, and questions about purpose and meaning and identity. The church has punted on those, has not sought to answer those questions from the authority of Scripture and begins to emulate the world. And so the next generation just continually looks to the world because it's all they've ever known. It's all they've ever seen modeled. 
So how will the generation, next generations know, love, and treasure God if we do not know, love, and treasure God and diligently teach and train and remind them of his greatness? And so with that, then, with this decline, it should not come then as a shock to us that, that when the church abandons its, its charge from Christ right, to, to go make disciples, to, to, to let go of the things of this world and cling to the greatest treasure, which is Christ, when we, when we let go of those things and instead the church, when we begin to embrace and serve more of a postmodern culture, it shouldn't surprise us that the consequences of those actions is confusion among people about what truth actually is. Or that there's the consequence of, of a perversion of God's good design for human beings. Or there's confusion or it's outright celebration and just a, a flat-out embrace of evil within our, within our culture. And a generation that's just abandoning and forgetting who God even is. It's what we see taking place here in, in Judges. The end of chapter 1, we talked about a couple weeks ago, traced Israel's failure to obey God's commands. And, and they, they disobeyed God's clear commands to drive out the, the pagan nations that were around them. Rather, what we see at the end of chapter 1 is that instead of driving them out, they lived among them. right? And, and slowly, they began to just embrace the pagan culture. And, and it was bringing then these horrific consequences for God's people. And because of their abandonment of, of God, the surrounding nations then suffered as well God's judgment because no longer is Israel being that light which God had called them to be, which would draw the nations to himself. Instead, Israel was just looking just like the surrounding nations all around them. Likewise, when we abandon God's call, to live as light in the midst of darkness, to proclaim the greatness and the, the goodness of God, and as we joyfully and gladly submit to his reign, his rule, when we look more like the, the culture around us than the God who has saved us, well, then the church loses its influence. The church no longer then draws people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to come behold the goodness and the grace of God. And what we're going to see is, and continue to see is generation after generation drifting away from knowing, loving, and treasuring God above all things. What inevitably will take place is what we see happen in verse 10 of our text this morning. It says that there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Therefore, what I'm going to seek to do this morning is to argue from the text that since God has done great things, since God is worthy of all worship, we must, we must model joyful obedience and diligently teach, train, and remind the next generation of God's greatness. And so to argue this, let's, let's look at the text, but we're going to start today at, at the end of what the text that was read this morning, and we're going to work our way up. So we're going to look at verses 11 through 15 first. So, so look again uh, at the verses that you heard Clint read just a few moments ago. Uh, verse 11 says that the people of Israel, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now pause here for just a quick second, and, and we need to get used to hearing that phrase as we journey through Judges. 
Uh, that, that phrase right there, the people of, of, of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, is going to be repeated at least six more times throughout the book of Judges. And it signals this. If you're familiar with Judges, you're, you're going to see that that phrase right there kind of kicks off this cycle that you're going to see coming throughout the book of uh, Judges, of, God, of Israel's unfaithfulness, of God's judgment, and God's mercy. And so the cycle that we're beginning to see here in, in the verses that were read this morning is, is this, that the people rebel and they do evil. They do evil, which then kicks in God's judgment upon them through the oppression and the enslavement from the, the nations that are surrounding them. So God's judgment then comes. And thirdly, the people cry out to God in their distress. Fourthly, then the cycle you see is that God hears their cries and he raises up then a, a judge to deliver them from their oppression, from their enslavement. With that, God brings about then the next part. He brings about freedom and rescue, brings about deliverance. But then the judge dies, and the people, once again, they fall right back into their old ways. They forget God, and they do what's evil, which brings about destruction in their lives. And the cycle is going to continue over and over again. So that's what we see here in verse 11, the beginning of this cycle. They did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals, it says. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were all around them. And they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. And they abandoned the Lord. And they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. He sold them into the, into the hands of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. See, if we're going to be diligent in modeling joyful obedience and teaching and reminding the next generation of God's greatness, we must first heed the warnings that come from disobedience. We've got to first heed the warnings Take notice of the warnings that God has given that come from disobedience. So, so verses 11, 12, and 13, they're outlining a little bit with more detail what takes place or the consequences of, of Israel's actions from the end of chapter 1. Right? So, so again, chapter 1 ends with, with the tribes of Israel not doing what God had called them to do, not driving out the inhabitants, but instead living among the surrounding culture. So Israel then, in clear disobedience to God, invited these wicked pagan nations to, to live amongst them. And so what happened then over time? No longer do they, do they serve God, but instead it says they're, they're serving the Baals. They're serving the, the Ashtaroth. These were the gods of the, the Canaanite nations. Baal, which literally means Lord, means master, means possessor. Baal was, was the storm god. He was the bringer of rain. Therefore, for Baal was recognized as the one that had power to provide increase for, for crops and for animals and for, for the people. But the Ashtaroth was, she was the, the mother goddess of the nations there. She had the power of fertility and the power of love and the power of, of war. Now, just a quick side point here, but it's just interesting how the Canaanites, it's like they couldn't conceive of one God who would have just all power, right? All power, complete and total power and control over humanity and all creation, but rather they're, they're manufacturing multiple gods, whereas the God of Israel reigned supreme over all of the universe, 
The God of Israel here was a God who was transcendent, is transcendent, is holy, sovereign, all-knowing, a God who had delivered the people, Israel, from enslavement in Egypt by doing what? By flexing his power over creation, by flexing his might over animals, over crops, over nature, over people, all the gods that, that Egypt had. God flexes his might over all of them, and yet Israel and really humanity ourselves, when when we're left to ourselves, will by nature abandon the the true holy God who reigns. and Instead, we we seek to cling to to little gods, little idols. Why? Probably because they're more controllable. They're more controllable. And so in these verses, we see Israel do just that, right? They abandon the Lord. They serve these false gods. And what happened? Well, verse 14 happens. God's anger is kindled against them. And God gave them over to their enemies. See, sin, disobedience, always brings about God's judgment. Always brings about God's judgment, which, which means that sin, no matter, no matter what it promises you, it will not lead you into life. It will not lead you into to flourishing in the way God has designed you to flourish. It will corrupt. Sin will corrupt everything. And it will leave you with nothing. At the end of verse 15, we see the consequences of Israel's rebellion. It left them, it says, in terrible distress. That's what sin brings about. Sin will always promise happiness, but it will always lead you toward destruction and leave you in terrible distress. And, And the deceptiveness of sin is that it doesn't destroy you immediately. Does it? Never does. Or very rarely does. It destroys you over time. As you go deeper and deeper into it, as your heart grows hardened and more callous toward it. See, Thomas Watson, he once said this, that sin has the devil for its father, has shame for its companion, and death for its wages. See, shame and ultimately death is what sin will always bring. We, we pray... We've probably heard stories over the years of people who think they, they can domesticate wild animals, right? Like I looked this week, I'm like, oh, let me come up with a story. And there were so many stories that I couldn't just pick just one, right? A, a quick a Google search is going to reveal story after story after story of owners being killed by their quote-unquote pet tiger or their quote-unquote pet lion, like, and, and so when you read these stories, everyone ends the same way. They didn't think, they thought they had a good relationship with the, the lion or the tiger. They couldn't imagine that this animal would do this, right? It, it doesn't matter how young the lion was when you first became its owner. It doesn't matter, matter how long you've been its owner. It's an apex predator. That, that's its nature. Like, it will attack. This is how it's made. See, sin, no matter how cute cuddly or controllable it may seem at first, will by its very nature devour you. Like what, what pet sins are you cuddling with? All right? Heed the warnings. Heed the warnings. I think I've shared this story uh, here before, but it, it probably should be mentioned again because um, I love uh, just making myself look like a, an idiot from time to time up here. Um, when, when I was an 18-year-old, 19-year-old, I was, I was not the well-put-together person that you see standing uh, here. I had just a good grasp of life and, and warnings and, and was walking in wisdom, right? So uh, 
time after time, when I'd get behind the wheel of a car, uh, our local law enforcement would do a great job of issuing warnings to me um, to say, you got to slow it down. And, and I never seemed to, to, to heed those warnings. Well, one, one day, um, a, f- a friend of mine, we were doing a, a weekend trip down to Nashville. And so we were going to drive and just spend a few days down there. And so I was 18, 19 years old, and uh, we left in the middle of a snowstorm, right? So I'm driving, and uh, I'm driving like it's a clear, sunny spring day with the roads clear and nobody on the road, right? So I'm going down the interstate. Well, speed limit says 70. I'm going 70. Um, It is whiteout conditions. It is spitting ice. It is nighttime. Um, I'm on uneven pavement as there's construction on the interstate that I'm driving on, and I'm flying by people and seeing people on the sides of the roads have lost control and gone into a ditch. And in my mind, because I'm an idiot, I'm thinking, well, these morons don't know how to drive, right? So, so I'm going, and all of a sudden, I try to get into an uneven lane, right? And I get half my car over. And I can't get the other half over. Again, there's so many warnings the whole time. And I'm like, oh, I just got to yank the wheel harder, and it'll get me over. Well, I do this at 70 miles per hour in whiteout conditions with ice, and I think we know what happens happened, right? Fishtailing, like crazy, at 70 miles an hour on the interstate, me and my friend, and start sliding, uh, not uh, parallel with the road, but now perpendicular to the road down the interstate. We finally come to a stop, see nothing but headlights coming our way. My friend, in the loudest scream he could utter, says, we're all going to die, right? <laughs> Thankfully, we didn't. Obviously, we didn't. The next, the next car that, that was actually coming our way was a police officer, put his lights on, stop the whole interstate so we could back up and then drive. Okay, that moment, I still remember that. Anytime it snows here, like I'm going to be one of those annoying drivers now that if you get behind me, I'm not moving quickly, right? Because that moment scarred me. Like I remember that moment of thinking, what in the world? The rest of our drive to Nashville, 10 and 2, 30 miles an hour down, and like all of a sudden I turned into a, a grandma driving behind the wheel. And, and good, it was good. Right? So, but I wasn't heeding the warnings until destruction just about came on top of us, on top of me. And in that moment, finally waking me up like, oh, I'm not indestructible. Bad things can happen. And, and so we've got to heed the warnings after God gives them to us, as he gives them to us. If we are going to model obedience and diligently teach and train and remind the next generation of the greatness of God, We've got to to first recognize the deadliness that comes from disobedience and the consequences that come from failing to hear him and to walk as he's called us to walk, which leads us into joy, not away from it. Secondly, from the text, though, what we see here this morning is that in response to this urgency, we must remember that our time on earth is limited. Our time on this earth is limited. In verse 8, we're reminded that, that no matter who you are, All of us have limited time on this earth. And so the question is then, how are you you trusting or using the time that God's given you? So in verse 8, it says, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in the Timnath-Heres and the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. They also died. common theme that pops up throughout the scriptures is you have an individual that is used by God in great ways. They die, and the story moves on. 
Uh, in Genesis 25, Abraham, a great leader, great one used of, of God, breathes his last breath. The story moves on with his son Isaac. Genesis 35, Isaac breathes his last breath. The story continues with Jacob. In Genesis 49, Jacob dies. One chapter later, Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, now he dies. Throughout the, through the books of Exodus, through Deuteronomy, the story centers around God's purposes with Moses, a, a great leader. However, the book of Joshua opens with Moses' death, and now with Joshua taking the lead. And here we are now, Judges chapter 2, with the death of Joshua and all who led with him. See, when Scripture records the deaths of these individuals, these men, when you read it, they're, they're given kind of like just like a sentence. It's given like a sentence of on their death, reporting it, and then the story God's weaving moves on. There's a couple things that we could probably take from that. One is the, the story that God is weaving together doesn't revolve around us. <laughs> it revolves around him. See, human beings have this knack for believing that life, for whatever reason, revolves around us. And so I'll look at it like this, like my take on things, my opinions on things, my, my understanding of life as I see it is what's most important and is, and is what is most enlightened at this season. This is just, just our natural tendency and our natural inclination. And so as, as Scripture records the deaths of these highly used people, but as it moves on quickly following this, it, it's going to remind us, it should remind us that the story of redemption what God is weaving is, is about him, his work. But, but secondly, the thing it reveals, and maybe this is more what the, the, to focus in on for our time this morning, is that it's revealing the brevity of life. In, in the book of James, chapter 4, verse 14, James says, what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Now, now the context of James 4 is him pushing back against people who believe they have kind of this complete control over their lives and their future. That they've planned everything out. They know what today is, know what they're going to do tomorrow. And then James, in essence, pushes against that and says, that's foolish. That's foolish. Like, you don't even know what tomorrow is going to bring. How can you then live or think that you are in complete control of your future? Rather, he says then in verse 15, here's the way we ought to, to see our lives through this, this prism, this lens of, our, uh, of the brevity of life. He says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. doesn't mean that we aren't to have plans and to, to think through things. just means that we are dependent upon a God who gives us our very breath. He's saying our very lives are ordained of God, and therefore it needs to come underneath his reign, his rule, his will for us. We aren't, we aren't guaranteed tomorrow. Listen, we're not guaranteed the rest of today. Our, our lives are dependent upon his will for us. And, and so it's, it's why then the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, writing to the, the church in Ephesus, would say this then, so make the best use of the time. Right? Make the best use of the time. Why? Because the days are evil. In our, in our bookstore, if you've had a chance to walk through there lately, there's, there's a series of 18 books that are on one of the walls. And they're books written for parents on how to make the best use of the time with their children in the limited time that God has given us to be with them. Uh, each book in the series is written for us to use during the, the, the 52 weeks of them being, if you have a, an infant, 52 weeks of them being that new baby or that, that year of them being a third grader or a senior in high school, right? It goes all the way up until they, they graduate high school, right? So we have, each year, we have 52 weeks to parent that new child. We have 52 weeks to parent a one-year-old. 
We have 52 weeks to parent a, a, a third grader before they go into fourth grade. And so each book opens with this really striking statement that just kind of hits you. It opens by saying this, there are approximately 936 weeks from the time a baby is born until they grow up and move to whatever is next. So for me personally, I've got a seventh grader in the home and I've got a fifth grader in the home, which means that with my fifth grade daughter right now, I have roughly 416 weeks left until she graduates high school and moves on to what, whatever is next. For my seventh grade son, I have, I have less than 312 weeks left until he graduates. Now, I, I understand the parenting doesn't stop when they move out, but, but you understand, like, man, that's a, that's a season, it's a change where a lot of times they move out of the home potentially. And what I appreciate about, the, appreciate about those books is they're, they're keeping in front of us the limited time that we have, which should cause us as, as parents to then evaluate, okay, what are we prioritizing in our homes? What, what is taking primary responsibility in our home? Are, am, am, I, am I leaning upon and understanding what God has entrusted to me, right? The primary responsibility of discipling my children. But of course, this, this point rolls on beyond parenting, all of us here have, have only the days allowed that God has allotted for us. We're not guaranteed tomorrow, and so what are we doing with today? What are we doing today to, to war against sin, right? To, to live on mission for the glory of God. What are we doing today to make his name known among those that we're sharing life with, right? If we're going to model obedience and, and diligently teach and train and remind the next generation of the greatness of God, right? We've got to first recognize the deadliness that comes from disobedience, but, but we also then have to remember that the time has, God has given us on this earth is limited, and so we must make the best use of it. And then thirdly, from our text this morning, we need to lead others then to behold the great things that God has done. Lead others to behold the great things God has done. Verse 7 says, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Now, it wasn't here that the, the people of God were perfect or that Joshua was this perfect leader, but, but what's written of Israel and what's written of that time of Joshua's leadership is that the people of God were characterized during that season of his leadership as ones who had a heart to love God and to serve him. And, and that when they fell short, there was, there was actual repentance, a turning, a change of attitude. But the end of the book of Joshua then ends with then his, his charge to the people, right? We talk about this week one of the series. Put away, he says, the false gods of the nations. Serve the Lord in faithfulness, right? Be relentless in this mission. Joshua took his cues from, from Moses, who, who likewise charged the people to love God and to diligently teach and train and remind this next generation of, of who he is and what he has done. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7, Moses says, Hear, O Israel, here's Moses' charge, right? The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I, I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Do we get the, do we get the idea of what Moses is trying to say here? Don't stop. Moses' charge here to the people and specifically even to us here this morning is to parents to be diligent 
in the discipleship of this next generation. What I take from Moses' words there is there's no day off. There's no day off. There's no vacation time when it comes to discipleship. And here's why. Um, Parents, I'll I'll just speak to uh, all of us here for just a, a few moments here, but we need to hear this. If you will not be diligent in your discipleship of your children, the world will be. Do we hear that? Like if we're not diligent in the disciple making of our children, the world will gladly take that, that responsibility for us. If you're not diligently discipling your children, teaching them, training them, praying over them, modeling for them what godliness is, what the, what the hope of the gospel is, how glorious God is, the world will take them and disciple them and the world never takes a day off. Parents, we have to be continually, continually evaluating our lives and how we are pursuing the next generation that God has entrusted to us, which, which means then that we need to, to carefully and to wisely examine if our home life, if our family rhythms, our, if our day-to-day life resembles a, a, a family, a life wholly submitted to the reign and rule of God, or a life that more, more closely resembles the, the embrace of modern-day idols of this world. So parents, we've got to be vigilant in what messages, in what beliefs from the world that we allow into our our homes to be viewed and to be listened to. Now, I want to be careful here. I'm not about to hand out a a list of here's all the approved music or the approved movies or the approved books or the approved apps that you can watch or spend time on, but I, I do want to challenge us with at least two quick things here. Parents, we better know what our children are absorbing. We better know what our children are absorbing and what messages that they're hearing, what they're watching, what they're reading. We, we, by God's grace, need to, as parents, need to be the filter through which everything comes into our homes and into their lives. And secondly, then, we need to know that, that every message that is coming into our homes from the world will not be Christ-centered, <laughs> right? It, it won't be, no message from the world is going to be pointing to the exaltation of Jesus above all things. And in many cases, the message coming from the world will actually be the opposite. It will be anti-Christ. If we don't think our culture today is pushing a very specific anti-God agenda that's wrapped up in catchy music, creative marketing, and this inclusive language and loving language, we're fools. It is anti-God. It is anti-Christ agenda that our culture is pushing and is moving at a rapid pace, and it has its target set on the next generation. So we better be aware of this, and we better be prepared to show not only then the, the foolishness and the wickedness and the insufficiency of the world's message, but to at the same time lay before our, our children the beauty the glory of God's good design, the beauty and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Parents, your children need the hope of the gospel just as you need the hope of the gospel. Model that in your home. Teach your children the gospel. Even, even moral messages from the world on being a good person need to come into our children's minds and hearts through the filter of the gospel. Meaning this, that yes, our children should strive to be good. Yes, absolutely, but they need to know that they're not good. They need to know they're sinners that are in need of grace, just as mom and dad are sinners in need of grace. They need to know that there's only one man who's ever lived on this earth who is fully good. That's Jesus. There's only one man who's ever lived, who has ever loved others perfectly, even his enemies. 
That's Jesus. And the next generation needs to know that because of their failure to be fully and perfectly good, they need salvation that only comes through the faith in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. Parents don't punt on this God-given responsibility. But, but let me pull all of us into the conversation here because we're all, as Christ followers, called to go make disciples of all nations, teaching them, as Jesus said in Matthew 28, to obey all that he has commanded, which means all of us are called to lead others, to behold the great things that God has done. And so college students, singles, grandparents, empty nesters, men, women, who are you? Ask yourself this question, who am I leading right now? to behold the great things that God has done? How am I investing in, in, in pouring into the life of another person, even specifically narrow it down here to our, the next generation? Who am I investing in, praying over, praying for? One of the best avenues, one of the best avenues of serving is in the local church. Right now, right now, we have close to 90 children in our kids' ministry. That's birth through fifth grade. On Wednesday evenings, our, our student ministry of junior high and high school students is pushing uh, upwards of 60 students. We've got college students here who are away from home, and some are, are desperate to connect with other godly brothers and sisters who, who they can learn from and grow in Christ-likeness. There's need and there's opportunity right here to engage and invest in the next generations. Yes, parents have the primary responsibility of disciple-making, Absolutely. But, but we're also a family of brothers and sisters here who can come alongside one another to encourage that parent, maybe that's struggling, to speak truth and life into the minds and hearts of the next generation, to pray over them. I understand that I'm responsible for my children, absolutely. But I will gladly, and I think I can speak for a lot of parents in here, I will gladly accept help from other godly brothers and sisters within my church family who will also pray for my children, to teach my children, and who will model godliness to them. Yeah, I'm responsible, but, but Galatians 6, we're responsible for one another before God. As we wrap up here this morning, the, the statistics I, I talked about at the beginning reveal that generation after generation now is, is walking away from the church. The problem is each generation will find, as they walk away from, from God, that the world also has nothing, has nothing of eternal value to offer. Now, that doesn't mean that that, that doesn't need to, be, need to be reformed within the church itself. Maybe perhaps we have failed to show and reveal the glory of God's greatness in our lives. Perhaps we have intermingled too closely with the gods of this world, and so now there doesn't seem to be maybe any difference between the two. Perhaps our churches more closely resemble social organizations Social clubs are filled with maybe lots of social events to fill our, our calendars, but not a place where people are discipled to desire Jesus more than all worldly gain and treasure. In J.T. English's book, Deep Discipleship, he says, it terrifies me that people may enjoy the sermon, <laughs> participate in small group ministry, volunteer on one of our many teams, and be completely satisfied by their experience, yet be spiritually apathetic toward the person and the work of, of Christ. See, churches are, are often good at keeping people busy and doing lots of good things. But, but a lot of times what happens is, is churches, we, we neglect the main reason for our gathering as the church. 
and that is to exalt Christ, to enjoy him and what he has done for us through his life, through his death, his resurrection. Just as the people of Israel were commanded to be diligent in teaching the next generation to obey God and to love God with all their heart, soul, and might and to remind them of, of God's love for them, we, we need to be diligent as well. I'll say it again, to teach, train, and remind the next generation, those in our lives of, of, of the greatness and love of God fully expressed in the person of Christ. Is the gospel continually on our minds and hearts and lips? Is the glory of God's name that which is sweetest to us, that which we, we speak of and lead others to behold? If we desire to no longer lose generation after generation, it begins here. It begins here with us and those that God has entrusted into our care as the family of God to reveal his glory and his greatness. So church, let me charge us. Let's show the next generation. Show them Jesus. Let's pray.